The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, and so I want to offer a few reflections about um, what the Buddha's teachings might have to say to us about the planet <laughs> and the uh, kind of the situation we find ourselves in, how it might some of the teachings might uh, help us navigate the uh, the issues facing us about climate change, about pollution, about deforestation, about um, overfishing, all of the issues that are facing us with the planet. And this is Earth Care Week, and um, just a little history about Earth Care Week. I think um, it was in about 2013, there was an international teacher conference where the teachers from all over the world get together um, and just reflect on the teachings and the issues that are up in the world and um, you know, how we can support our communities. And at that, at that meeting, um, there was a lot of discussion about global warming and about climate change. And um, the idea for Earth Care Week, I believe, was born at that, at that um, meeting. And that all the sanghas that are associated with all the teachers uh, kind of agreed to um, make the first week of October be a week to include reflections in our communities around these topics. And so um, we're continuing that. We kind of committed to doing that four years ago. And so each um, first week of October, we, we offer reflections on this theme. And so I thought I'd start by offering a few reflections um, you know, just thoughts I've had around what the teachings might have to offer and then, and then open it up for discussion, um, you know, thoughts that you have or questions or comments or reflections um, about, you know, uh, and there's the question not only, you know, how, how do we open to the suffering, but then how do we act? So those two sides of the question... So this morning I thought I'd reflect on the, the side of the question that um, in, in thinking about the, the issues related to the earth, um, I mean, we, we, are having, we are having, you know, so many things happening this, this summer. It's kind of stunning, you know, the, the three hurricanes, the four hurricanes, the one hitting Mexico, the two earthquakes in Mexico, the... Um, um, There were some other things. My mind, my brain is <laughs> um, is a little tired this morning. So there's been so much this um, this this summer around. You know, the Earth kind of speaking to us, and you know, I, I don't think that the earthquakes are related to um, what we're doing on the planet. But certainly, most of the issues that that we're having that are resulting in human suffering. I mean, where we are, we are you know, damaging the earth, adding uh, carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. And so the earth, you know, the earth having its, its own mechanisms for, for homeostasis, um, you know, is, is, is creating um, shifts and changes in our climates and in, our, um, in the, the, um, the patterns of the, 
the um, the currents in the ocean, which which make changes to climates uh, around the the, earth, the world, and so so many so many things that we're doing are impacting the earth, and in turn impacting us, you know, impacting our our um, our ability to feed ourselves, our um, you know the, the shifting of the the heat is shifting where we can grow crops and so many more storms and devastation with storms and so there's just so much suffering that's happening as a result of the of the issues related to the to the earth and when i look at you know the various things we're talking about you know overconsumption is at the root of the of the issues if we kind of trace it back to a cause overconsumption is really the cause. And some of that's related to, you know, just the number of people on the planet. We're now at 8 billion, I think, 8 billion plus people on the planet. And and that certainly has an impact. And yet, also looking at, you know, I was actually reading a, an article um, by um, an, I don't know what he's called, an eco ecologic, some kind of an ecological scientist. Um, Paul Hawken, some of you may have heard about him. He, he wrote an article for Tricycle, or he was interviewed for Tricycle magazine recently. And he, um, he has this uh, website called Drawdown, and I found it really interesting. If, you, if you're interested, um, you can check it out. It's, um, it's got, it, it basically looks at various things that are affecting the climate. Um, and what, what are we doing and what can we do in those various areas? And which ones are going to have the greatest impact? And so the, the solutions that are actually already happening are kind of ranked by, by their... Um, by their ability to have an impact. And, um, you know, I was surprised to see that one of the greatest impact things and one of the things that's most impacting uh, the, uh, that, that we might have the most impact on is basically food waste. That we throw away so much food and the food, you know, it takes it takes carbon dioxide to produce the food, and the 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 all of the equipment and everything adds adds um, you know carbon dioxide to the air, and the factories and all of the work adds adds pollution to the air, and then um, and then the waste itself rots and produces gases that are added to the air, and so you know just sim- and and the the land that's used to cultivate that is deforested. So it's like this this many 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 different conditions that are kind of reinforcing each other, and and um, he pointed out that in in the um, higher income economies, so our economy. Households tend to waste 35% of their food. They throw away 35% of their food. So that's, that's, you know, so that's an area of kind of overconsumption, you know, purchasing more than we need, um, uh, growing more than we need. Having the other thing I, I saw on this was, you know, the, the aesthetics of food, you know, the, the, um, there was this, this um, image of all of these bins of food that were 
culled out of the um, of the um, crops because the carrots were crooked or the potatoes were a little deformed, and so you know that that they were just being thrown away. Some of it was going to to um, to animal food, but it was. Um, you know, basically, the, in this picture, it was sitting there rotting. And so, you know, so these, these questions of, you know, over, first overconsumption, and then that question of aesthetics, you know, that we feel like, you know, I can't eat a carrot that's crooked or something. So, you know, these are mental things in our mind that, um, and, and, you know, so, so the, the issues around overconsumption and what we take as acceptable food are, are things that are rooted in habits of mind. And so that's the place I want to just talk about a little bit is that that piece, you know, we can, we can definitely take some steps in our own lives to look at our consumption. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and, and yet to just look at our habits of, um, you know, what, what we do and how we do it. So the, the fundamental driver of consumption in our culture, and I think in most cultures actually, is um, sense desire. Now, with food, of course, we need, we need to eat. And so, you know, we, we, we need to look at, so sense desire... Um, and maybe another kind of desire. Let's look at let's look at the different kinds of desires that exist in our in our system. So so there's um, the sense desire, which is you know the desire to have pleasure, the desire to have um, pleasant experience, to get rid of unpleasant experience. That's got a kind of a needy quality to it that is basically driven in order to satisfy the desire to have pleasure. So that's sense desire, and that's a lot of where our economies are, are based, is in that mechanism of sense desire. Then there's other kinds of desires um, that kind of there's a, a kind of an inner wish or a movement in our system and I sometimes don't like to call it desire but it is a form of desire it's a it's a movement in the direction of well-being it's a movement in the direction of um, you know our system basically has a movement towards well-being is probably the best, the best word that I can use for it. Peace, ease, some sense of okayness. So our, our, our human system is designed to, to move in the direction of well-being. And here's where the Dharma has something to point out to us. Because um, basically the, the movement towards sense pleasure is um, what our, our minds, our habits, and our, and our um, cultures, and our families have convinced us that the movement towards sense desire is a movement towards well-being. That the movement, movement towards getting what I want and getting rid of what I don't want. That our cultures, and I mean, kind of even the way our human 
system works a little bit. Because when we get something that we like, when we get something that we want, there's a moment of feeling, ah, I'm okay, I've got it. Maybe a feeling if I figured it out, if I figured out how to get rid of something that I don't want. You know, so there's a feeling, a little bit of okayness that is kind of a little bit of well-being. It's a little bit of happiness. It's a little bit of that sense of relief or release when we get something that we want or get rid of something that we don't want. And so that we've learned over our lives from the time we were very young that when we get something we want, ah, I'm okay now for a moment. And then that passes, you know, the, the, because all, everything is impermanent, all kind of, um, you know, sense pleasure that we are put in association with or anything that we kind of separate ourselves from that's unpleasant, things are going to change and the, the pleasant things are going to pass and fade and the unpleasant, new unpleasant things will appear. And so we, we just move in the direction of, okay, well, oh, I'm feeling uncomfortable again. I need to get something I want. I need to get rid of something that I don't want. Oh, I have a moment of relief again. And then that goes away. And then we're, we're just back on this cycle. And so the, the, um, what the Buddha understood and it's really, I mean, it's really brilliant of the Buddha to, to, to figure this out, I think, that, that that movement or that cycle towards getting what I want, getting rid of what I don't want, is self-reinforcing and is endless. It is endless, that cycle. It basically drives us to consume. It drives us to find something to consume. Because the mind is kind of recognizing or saying, so I get into a moment of, there's that moment of relief, of release. Ah, oh, got it, figured it out. And then the, um, that fades. And our minds kind of get in this feeling of a little bit of dissatisfaction or a little bit of, huh, not quite right. And, well, the last time I felt good was when I got something that I wanted. So let me find something to want. And let me get something. And so that, that habit, that pattern tends to fuel a cycle of wanting and overconsumption and consumption. It's consumption for the sake of getting that hit of relief and release. And basically our, our experience has taught us, partly because our cultures teach us this, our families, our cultures, the advertising all teaches us that that is happiness and that that's as good as it gets. You know, that that, that, that having some experience, a pleasant experience or some pleasant thing or some, some um, pleasant... Um, when it feels like people look at us the way we want them to look at us, some pleasant experience of identity, then that's what happiness is. And the Buddha comes along and he recognized that cycle itself is just perpetuating this feeling of wanting, which is suffering. Actually, when we start to look at it with mindfulness, we actually see that that movement of wanting, that movement of, of wanting to get something, is already a painful experience in our, in our system. And so we're, we're already suffering there, which is part of the reason why we're driven to consume too, because wanting is unpleasant, and the only way our system has 
understood that that wanting will go away is if I get the thing that I want. And so we are driven to consume because of that wanting. And we have not explored the possibility that there might be another way for release from that wanting. Because when we're caught by that wanting, when we're caught by that desire, we are caught in the grip of its view, which is wanting believes that getting the thing that I want is where happiness lies. So that's the view of wanting. Wanting is not going to give you the information that if the wanting releases, that happiness lies there also. And a different form of happiness lies there with the release of wanting. And so this is what the, partly what the Buddha discovered. You know, he, he, in, looking at his, in looking at his mind, he began to recognize that, um, that, that we, can, we can explore and watch that wanting and see that it can release. The second noble truth that the Buddha taught, the first noble truth is, is that there is suffering, and the second is that craving is the cause of that suffering. And the third noble truth is that the ending of craving is, a, is peace, is ease. And so the, that's a whole different perspective on consumption. So, so there's, there's this, um, this um, movement towards consumption that we have habitually gotten ourselves connected with, which is towards this wanting and towards this sense pleasure. And yet what we think, and again, what, what wanting is telling us is that um, if you don't act on me, you know, wanting and aversion. They're, they're kind of, they've also got the belief that they are the reason we do things in some ways. When they are, are active, you know, it, it, our mind tells us, well, if I didn't want something, why would I do anything? If I didn't want to eat, why would I eat? If I didn't want to get up and get out of bed, why would I get out of bed? And so this is now pointing to the, a different kind of desire, a different kind that, that there is a different motivation that can be connected with our actions. A motivation that is associated not with greed or aversion, but with a genuine movement towards a deeper kind of well-being that the Buddha actually discovered was possible through the release of this needy wanting through the release of this craving. So the, um, the deeper kind of well-being, and, and actually once we have a taste of the different kind of happiness that's possible, our system really begins to understand that because our system, because our human system is designed to move towards well-being, as we begin to taste the well-being that comes with the mind settling in concentration, as we begin to experience a kind of well-being that comes from letting go of that needy craving, our system understands that that is a deeper kind of well-being, a deeper kind of happiness than getting what I want. And so our whole system begins, it's like 
this, this practice gives our system an education that it has been completely confused about where happiness lies. That, that it has thought that this happiness lies in this consume, 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 buy, get, have, want. And the, um, the, the exposure and the exploration of the practices that the Buddha taught gives us a different taste of well-being and a different taste of happiness that, that comes in a completely different way. That comes through settling the mind. The, the happiness of concentration comes through just connecting with experience in the moment. And the, uh, the happiness of letting go of the wanting comes with the cultivation of insight and mindfulness that we begin to, to see the way greed and aversion is motivating our experience and, and begin to explore the possibility of not acting on every single desire, every single wanting. And so this is a form of desire, this movement towards well-being, this movement towards Peace, ease, happiness. And it's a very fundamental part of our system. And so it it operates. And it can be motivated by compassion, kindness, generosity, renunciation, wisdom, patience, So this kind of desire is, is what I'd like to explore in the context of the planet. Is what might it mean if we began to be curious about the way we are engaging with consumption and explored the possibility of what whether what I'm consuming is supporting... So, so when we consume, we are either consuming things based on that neediness and that greed and that movement towards greed and aversion. You know, we're, we're either consuming on that, based on that, the movement towards sense pleasure, sense desire, or we are consuming based on the true um, movement in the direction of well-being. We will need to consume to stay alive, to act in this world. We will need to consume food and energy and, um, and medicine and we'll need clothes and all of those things. We, we need those things. And so the question is, are we consuming out of a true need and a true movement in the direction towards well-being, or are we consuming based on sense pleasure? And so this comes back to intention, looking at intention, and this is also a place the Buddha pointed us to, that as we engage with um, looking at our minds, we start to see that every choice that we make has a motivation Every choice is motivated um, either by something, you know, based in greed, uh, delusion, or aversion, or it's based in some wholesome quality. 
And so can we explore our choices and our consumption? When we, when, because making consumption is making a choice. And often it's a choice that we, we have some time to reflect on. And so it gives us an, an avenue in for looking at what are our motivations behind consumption, to look at that, to explore that. What, what do we value? That's another question. Some of, some of my reflections on this were inspired by um, an article called Buddhist Economics by um, a Thai teacher called Paiuto. It's quite an extended, uh, extended article, but he talks about a number of pieces in there. In particular, he, he looks at, at value. What do we value? And he said, most of the time what we place a high value on are things that will provide sense pleasure. And we, we actually don't place su- such a high value on things that provide well-being. True well-being, in any case. In fact, the way that we're engaged with sense pleasure, I mean, this is another lesson that the Buddha pointed us to, the way we're engaged with sense pleasure habitually acting out on that wanting and needing and where was the last time I was happiness? When I wanted something. So let me find something else to want. We're actually encouraging the habit of wanting and aversion there, which is directly counter to a deeper kind of well-being. And so our habitual way of consuming is actually harming us in terms of this deeper kind of well-being. And so this is where I talked last week about renunciation. This is where the Buddhist teaching on renunciation might be interesting for us to explore. And so um, start to explore how we give value to our choices of consumption. And our choices, our, our intentions when we, we do consume. So reflecting on the purpose behind our consumption. Why are we consuming? When we, when, and, and also I think uh, in terms of, um, you know, overconsumption, I think I notice myself, I, I do throw quite a bit of food away and this article is like, wow, this is an area I really want to practice mindfulness around. This article that I read uh, in Tricycle by Paul Hawking and, and then looking at his website, Drawdown, it's like, yes, that is something that I can look at with mindfulness to be ca- take care, to reflect on, you know, it takes a little bit more work, perhaps, to think about how many meals am I eating this week in my home versus where am I out for a meeting and where am I going to be um, getting food elsewhere. So how much food do I actually need this week? Because that's, that's what happens for me is I, I end up, you know, kind of estimating roughly in my mind, oh, yeah, I'm going to, you know, need these things to have, have meals for this week. And, and, um, and then I end up not being home as much as I thought I would be. And the food goes bad, especially the fresh produce goes bad. And so I end up throwing out food. And so this is, this is for me, this is going to be a mindfulness practice. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick this one up. And start looking at, okay, not, so this, this piece is more about delusion, right? It's not so much about, well, maybe there's a little greed in there and that I want to be sure that I have a variety of food to pick from when I make my meals in the week, you know? I, so, so that's a little bit of greed, but, but largely it's about, it's about like 
not, basically not being willing to take the time to think thoroughly through my week. How many meals am I going to eat at home? So, so that's, that's kind of a, an ignorance. It's a, it's, a, it's a willful ignoring of something I could reflect on. And so, you know, to, to look at that in, in terms of when I'm, when I'm at the store, before I go to the store, really look at what have I got here. Look at my calendar. How many meals am I going to be at home for? And then purchasing accordingly. So to, to um, you know, find things like this. And, and I would encourage you to look at that drawdown website because it gives a lot of little pieces that are kind of amazingly um, connected to our everyday activities that we can engage in. Things like this, you know, things like the, the food consumption. And see if there's a, 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 a piece around consumption that might be of interest to you in terms of um, um, reflecting on your intention when you consume. So when you... When, I'll take questions in just a second. I'm almost done. And so in, um, in you know, the, the choices that we make, I mean, I do quite a bit of my purchasing online these days, and so that, I'm going to use that also as a mindfulness bell. It's like, okay, I'm online, I'm, I'm searching. It's like, okay, what's my motivation? <laughs> do I need this thing? Is this, is this sense pleasure? Is this actual needing, a need for something that I need? So to... to Allow mindfulness to enter into the choices around consumption. And the last piece that I'll point to is that, you know, greed and aversion takes a lot of energy in our system. It's draining for us in a lot of ways. And this is one of the the kind of hidden benefits of the release of greed and aversion. We end up with a lot more energy. And that energy can be directed towards the more, um, uh, the wholesome direction towards well-being, not only for ourselves, but for others. That, that as we become um, wise consumers, as we become more wise about how we are engaging in consumption, we are supporting a, a reduction of that greed and aversion cycle which supports the reduction of greed and aversion, which gives us more energy to maybe volunteer our time for something or to do some research on what we might do to contribute to ending the cycle of global warming. So those are just a few reflections, and I'd love to hear comments, questions, thoughts. And Myla, Myla, Mila, Mila, Myla, um, why don't you go first? So I had a quick question about the website. Is this the article in Tricycle? Well, there's an article in Tricycle that's an interview with Paul Hawken, H-A-W-K-E-N, singular, <laughs> Paul Hawken, and his website is called Drawdown, and that's, that's where all of these different solutions are listed, these different, you know, projects and things that, that can be done. You know, another one that, um, that I saw that, 
that we are going to actually be working on here at, at IMC is um, that local rooftop solar is also a really supportive um, piece you know, for, for combating um, global warming. So, and we're going we're gonna to be putting solar panels here. <laughs> so, yeah. hey. Okay, so now I had so many thoughts while you were speaking, and I'm, not, I'm really tired, but I'll try to put a couple out there. One was uh, when I have visited Buddhist uh, monasteries, like I go on the Buddhist bike pilgrimage. I've done that several times. I love how you take what you can eat and you don't take more than what you're going to consume. You can always go back for more. And I remember the first time we did that, it just affected me in such a pleasant way. I didn't, I didn't um, think about oh, how hungry I was. I took what I thought I would eat, and if I wanted more, I went back. It just, it just was a really pleasant way of being. Yeah. And you didn't have to think about um, missing out on anything. Um, and I loved how we didn't waste food. And, you know, I, I, I do these things and then I come back and I try to practice them in my own life. And then you forget about them after well, a while. And, and also, I think we are supported in that kind of setting by the community, right? Yes. Over-consuming and, and, and spending. And here, we're supported by the over-consuming mm. <laughs> community. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like, so it's, it, we're kind of swimming upstream and going against the the tide. But, you know, there's actually another thing that Paul Hawking said in this article that I found interesting. Um, he said that in the, in the tricycle article, let me see if I can find it. I'll read it to you. I, I think I printed it out. Yeah, I did. He said, it seems that only a very small percentage of the population has to change to influence a larger apathetic population. The poster child for this point is LGBT rights. In 2010, it was an issue that people could run against in order to get, to get elected to Congress. Two years later, those same people had their tail between their legs and wouldn't talk about it because they knew they might lose the election. How did that shift happen? I don't think humanity can shift without a lot of hard work, but it doesn't take 100% or 90% or even 50% to make the change. It only takes 5 to 10% of dedicated people to change the balance of the whole. And so that's something that we can you know, look at. So individual effort may have a bigger impact than we think if we communicate with our families and communicate with our friends and, and have it be a conversation, have it be a reflection, maybe at Thanksgiving. <laughs> you know, let's look at not over-consuming at Thanksgiving and, 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 um, and maybe um, you know, reflect on... Uh, what you br- brought, too, I think, is the, is the you know, reflecting on eating... In the Buddhist traditions, in the monasteries, we tend to reflect on the purpose of food, which is to feed the body and nourish the body and, and to treat it for that purpose. The and other the, thing, and that's, that's a beautiful reflection. Uh, also, with buying food and throwing produce mainly and other things out, uh, you know, there is a way to cook based on what you have in your refrigerator, not what you absolutely thought you were going to eat tonight yes. and want to have. So I know you can even put ingredients in on the website, and it will give you a, a recipe. <laughs> oh, that's uh, a and, great one. To and my daughter about. taught me this, who's in college. You know, she... She has to go once in a while when someone will give her a ride to a store and she'll overbuy. But then she uses what she has. And she's a vegetarian, which I, I am not. And, I, you know, the other way is, 
I started thinking about, well, if I don't eat meat, how big of an impact is that going to have? You know, and, and it would. You just said 5% to make a yeah. change. And, yeah. and also, you make that impact in your own soul. And, That's and, true. And yeah. you just feel good about doing something like that. I think even a reduction in meat consumption yes. would be a huge impact. You know, so so that's I mean, that's the that's I think num- that's that's one of the top 10 on this list mm-hmm. is shifting to a, a vegetarian diet. You know that that if, you know, like 50 percent of the people or 50 percent of reduction in meat consumption or something like that worldwide would reduce huge amount of carbon going into the air. So. So, yeah, it's I mean, just really looking at at that, too, you know. Yeah. And then. Jonathan, and then Beverly after that. Yeah, sure. Well, it occurred to me that when you said greed exhausts energy, this is actually a way that greed perpetuates itself because if you exhaust a lot of energy in acts of greed, you're inclined to replenish your energy through more greed. Indeed. (laughs) Right. Yes. And I guess one of the most bizarre and evidently delusional forms of greed uh, is when you decide, well, if I can't have it, nobody else can either, and then you destroy the object of your greed because you won't be able to possess it. And But yet, this is what people do. This is, I, I guess, the ultimate perversion of the consumerist mm-hmm. uh, thinking. Um, yeah. Just flash to that. So, uh, let's talk more about the earth now. <laughs> Well, well, back to food waste, I just want to tell you some personal research I have done over years because I am always budget constrained. And so over years, I've kept track of pretty much every cent I spend on food, um, groceries versus eating out. And what I've found, surprisingly, and every time I'm surprised, is, and this is how I solve food waste, it's bothered me for years because of that, is that unless you go to really fancy places, and I'm not talking about Going to fast food places. I mean, you can go. You can find healthy places that are reasonable. You're not spending 25 or 30. The difference between buying groceries and cooking home and eating out is almost nil. Now, I know that may be different with families with children, but <laughs> busy people who can't do a lot. So that took a lot of off my mind. Particularly, quite often, and maybe if you and I, that what you get at a restaurant is two times as much food as you need anyway, and you can take half of it and bring it home. And so I don't throw food away anymore because I just don't buy that much. I do buy certain things. I know I need like eggs and stuff, but yeah. And I think too, it would be, it would be great if we could figure out, I mean, this, I think this also, I think the, that, that heading of overconsumption of food or food waste extends to food that restaurants throw out, Um, you know, and so finding ways to, to have that feed into, uh, food banks and, and things like that. So, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for creative thinking. And maybe with some of the greed that is released and with the energy that's freed up, maybe some of us can go into creative thinking <laughs> around this. So other comments? Any other thoughts or questions or comments? Yeah, Randy. This is very thought-provoking and, um, and helpful. And another area that it made me think of that I haven't thought about in a while is the um, cycle of production of 
new materials and how much energy that actually uses in terms of using raw materials and transportation and so forth. And um, it made me think about a group in San Francisco. There's a club that um, is committed to not buying anything new. And they have a list of a few things that they do allow people to buy new, like toiletries and underwear and toilet paper and things <laughs> like that. But, and, but the list is pretty small. And um, and I'm not um, committed enough to join this group um, because it requires a lot of foraging. Um, for example, um, if you're going to remodel your house, it is very difficult to uh, do that with used materials. Um, but it's an interesting concept that leads to also recycling what we have hoarded and stored and are not using because other people are potentially looking for it. Uh-huh. And so yeah. we can uh-huh. um, recycle uh, much of what we have and use recycled things that, re, uh, that people have also gotten rid of. And that it would make a huge impact on how much we're consuming mm-hmm. material yeah. goods. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that reflection. Yeah. If that's it, yeah, Peggy. Um, a couple things. Actually, a lot of things, but I won't say them all. Um, <laughs> but we have plenty of time, so... We do? <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> The one thing I wanted to say, which probably won't be popular to hear, but I work for a nonprofit, and we got a lot of food from Second Harvest. And actually, a lot of that went to waste because, you know, they insisted we take a large amount, and we had trouble using it all, and and some staff didn't make the effort. But, um, you know, and, and some of us... Some of the staff brought some home, you know, and I remember debating and feeling like, no, this isn't right. And then I thought, well, it's going to waste and yeah. better that I should use it than no one. But um, personally, what I've realized is that, um, you know, I, I love going on retreats and I love being in nature. And I think the common thread there is that um, the desire, as you say, is for the most part is removed. There's there's not all these different options, and um, and it is it's it's a wonderful feeling not not to have that. Yeah. But um, but in this usual world, it is so hard for me to um to continue that sort of letting go. And what I was thinking as you were talking was like, yeah, that sounds great. I'm going to try that for a month, just not buy anything new, you know, just food that I need. And then I realized, you know, usually when I do buy things, I'm not sitting here, you know, in the meditation hall in that nice space. And, um, you know, it's like my mood's altered when you said desire won't tell you that there's another way. It's true. It's like I'm caught in that desire, and that usually might be because I'm, frustrated about something else so I guess I'm just wondering if if you could speak to that because like now I have that awareness but in that moment 
it's probably not going to be there as much, and it's just hard as heck to... So, so what I'd encourage is, is some kind of... I mean, like, you can, you can use... Have, set an intention towards having mindfulness be there when you're buying things. So, you know, that, that might be something, you know, so like often in daily life practice, I encourage people to pick some activity that you do regularly and explore the possibility of being aware when you're doing it. And that, that works. I mean, the way that works is that basically you set the intention and then you'll notice that you've forgotten. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, you set the intention when you're, you're meditating to pay attention to the breath and then you notice that you've forgotten the breath. And so you, you, in the noticing that you've forgotten, then you, you can recognize, oh, I forgot the breath, so now maybe I can reconnect with the breath. And so we, in meditation, we do that kind of thing where we notice we've forgotten, and then we, at that moment, can reconnect. And yet, the way this works in daily life is a little different. Because what generally happens is that, you know, something like maybe you set the intention to be mindful when you're consuming, to look at that, that feeling of the wanting, the beliefs that are in there. And I'll talk more about that in just a moment, but just, just to begin to get you kind of in the terrain of being able to be there. Because that's the hardest part, is to be able to be there, to be able to be present, to have mindfulness be there when we are engaged in that activity. Yes, and you don't, I don't want to at that Right. It's like I'm almost like, F this. <laughs> so, but if you set the intention to be present for it, it you'll notice throughout the day, you know, what you, what you may notice is at some point during the day that you have consumed several things already during the day. You know, you've purchased several things. And by consumption here, I'm meaning the act of, of acquiring something. Um, and so... Um, um, you, you'll, you may notice you've acquired several things during the day and not reflected on it. And in that moment when you notice that you have forgotten, that's when the practice begins, even though in that moment you may not be consuming. You know, you may not be acquiring something, but in that moment just, oh, okay, I've forgotten before, and I'm just going to recommit to that intention. I'm going to recommit to that intention to being aware when I acquire something. And, and keep going with that intention. Every time you remember that you've forgotten, reconnect to that intention. And what you'll find is that intention bears fruit over time and that you will eventually be available. You will eventually be aware. And in that moment, probably the first thing you'll notice is, ooh, don't want to be aware here. <laughs> and so notice that. You know, notice that resistance. That's the first thing to be aware of. So, so we, we, you might recognize, oh, resistance to being aware is happening. And, you know, maybe that's where it ends. But you will have started. And don't give up. What I'd encourage is not giving up. At some point, there will be enough mindfulness to be present. It's kind of like, it's, it's almost like what happens is that there's some of that wanting that's got that delusion going. You know, I need this thing. I need this thing to be happy. And there's some mindfulness it's like the percentage balance is shifting. Mm. And so there's some mindfulness that can see through that delusion or at least acknowledge that is potentially a delusion, that it's a belief of wanting and that there's another view maybe. And so in that, in, at that point, what I'd encourage is, is playing with the possibility from time to time, especially if you see that you're in the process of acquiring something and you immediately recognize, wow, this is something I don't need. 
You know, maybe, because there's a lot of those, I think, in our, in our day. Oh, so this is something I don't need. So in that moment, play with potentially watching the wanting. Not saying, okay, I'm not going to want it. You know, because we're not going to be able to stop the wanting. I mean, we maybe can repress the wanting and walk away from it. But what I'd encourage actually is curiosity about the wanting itself. What does this wanting feel like? How does it, how does it make me, uh, you know, how does it make me feel? What is it, what kind of thoughts does it make me have? The feeling of that leaning into, I'm not going to be okay unless I get that thing. All of that, just be aware of all of that. And you'll also begin to recognize in that exploration that the wanting itself is painful. You know, it hurts. And, and that's when that belief is going to get stronger. It's like, oh, the only way to make this go away is to get that thing. Only way to get away is to get that thing. But then be curious about that. Is that really true? Because wanting is going to tell you that. But, but wisdom can actually kind of hold you in the, the field of that wanting. And over time, that wanting will weaken. And, and maybe it just kind of dissipates and you don't see it ending. But at some point, you may notice, oh, that wanting's not there. And do, now, from the perspective of not sitting in front of the computer and looking at that thing, now do I really think I need it? Maybe not. So, so letting it be a mindfulness exploration, but as I, as I said, and as you really pointed to, it's getting the mindfulness to kind of be there for it, to be, be able to do that exploration that is the, 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 the challenging part. And so I'd really encourage a, a mindful exploration of that, setting that intention and, you know, maybe, maybe just for a week or two, explore this as a possible mindfulness practice. Yeah. Thank okay. you for the question. Thank you. Yeah. Anybody else have something? You, you had said you had a couple, so we have only a few more minutes, but did you have... Anything you wanted to add, either of you? No? Anything? Did you have, did you have anything? Because you said you had a couple of things. So. They've left my mind at the okay. moment. <laughs> Any other reflections? Or? Yeah. There's time. Yeah, there's time. Yeah, there's time. And wait for the mic. I reading a Buddhist book on this. It wasn't that great a book, so it's not about the book. But it did talk about the hedonic treadmill that you were talking about. And, and he went on the usual kind of argument, well, you know, in evolution we had to survive and, you know, and so we have to eat. So we had to have a mechanism to want to eat. And so, so we had to have pleasure so we could eat. And the, the reason it's not a good book is he, he didn't stop there. <laughs> he went on because not realizing what a, huge, what a huge question this begs, we had to have pleasure so we would eat. But there was nothing called pleasure that existed outside that could be put in our brains. There, there's, there's no pleasure, right? It's not an objective thing that, it, that exists. Right, it's, and, it's, and, it's uh, an what, experience. <laughs> it's an experience. Pleasure's an experience. Yeah, I know, but, but what's it an experience of and, and why? So what I mean is it doesn't actually exist. Well, outside it's, of it's, needing, there is a, there is an experience. There's no no no. Thing I know there's an experience pleasure, but you know, so there's it, it, it's not inherent in the food, for example. That's what I thought, yeah, or in in the world, even right. Yeah. So, and so, I mean, maybe you all thought about this all the time. So maybe it's not a new, but I I just stopped there and I thought, wow. Yeah, no, <laughs> we that's, assume that's, there's that's something an called important, pleasure. Important and, reflection. And then I thought, well, that's that's interesting. So I like to eat ice cream, and I thought, well, 
there's this thing called pleasure, but it's not really pleasure. It's just a way I'm designed. So when I want to get ice cream, I say, well, what is it then? <laughs> uh-huh. Right, so I'm going to get ice cream. Well, what is this thing? Well, I don't know. It's like and there's we a gag feeling like in the back of my throat. Actually. Yeah, and then like, my mouth is kind of wet. That's all. <laughs> so, so what, you know, it's interesting actually to watch yeah. babies get ice cream for the first time. <laughs> they almost always make a face. They do not like it. Yeah. And because that's because cold is the predominant experience. Oh, okay, yeah. And it's painful. <laughs> the cold of ice cream is painful, and yet we have learned to, to zero in on the sweetness and the creaminess, which, which we yeah, do but even experience. Then why? I mean, why is that pleasurable? You see, well, I, I mean, you know. it's, there's, there's, there's <clears throat> things in our experience, I think, that, you know, potentially, I mean, and there are differences. It's conditioned to be pleasant. Yeah, it's conditioned to be pleasant. So, for instance, I had an experience um, eating an apple and bean dip on one retreat, where you know I took a bite of the apple and I noticed just—I mean, it was a very—it was—it was, it was a, a fresh apple in the fall in Massachusetts, and it was just very, very delightful, sweet, tart—the right combination for this body, you know, I, I, this this conditioning. And then a bite of the bean dip, and then another bite of the apple, and the pleasure was even stronger after the bean dip. So noticing the conditioning of what I had been eating that affected the, the pleasure of the apple, and then noticing that over time the pleasure of the apple diminished. You know, so, so that seeing directly that the pleasure was a conditioned phenomenon. And it's an important reflection. It's not, it's not yeah. inherent in the experience. Yeah, well, my, my reflection is, what actually is the pleasure? What does it consist of? It's something I couldn't in your find brain. it. There was nothing. It's in your so brain. I would, so I love, like, so the vanilla ice cream, the orange sherbet. So I put it in there, it's like, what is it? Nothing. I don't know. There's some neurons or something firing, but I couldn't figure out, I couldn't identify what pleasure was or what it was. Yeah, pleasure pleasure and, in, yeah. um, in, I think, in neuropsychology sure, is a particular <laughs> set of firings in the brainstem. So there's, there, and, and it's conditioned. So there's, there's certain things that happen that create certain firings in the brainstem that are interpreted as pleasure and then others that are interpreted as pain. So, for instance, there's, there is mechanism in our system. If we cut ourselves with a knife, oh, yeah, sure. that is designed to produce unpleasurable sensation. But it's meaningless, really. So it just doesn't have any meaning except how we experience except it. What, and what we put so, on it. Yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. Like, so my mouth feels wet and there's a gaggy feeling in the back of my mouth. That means I've got to get in my car, drive, pay four twenty five, stand in a line to get ice cream. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and so it's... it's Strange. So it, it's really worth yeah. looking at what you experience as pleasurable and what you experience as painful. And I would encourage you not to just simply dismiss it and say, this is, this is, this is, is um, illusion. You know, but to notice where you are interpreting something as pleasure and where you are interpreting something as painful and noticing that it is conditioned. So, so just notice that part of it. I, w- I would encourage you not to like say, oh, this is, this is illusion, so it doesn't matter. Because your system, because your brain will tell you that, but your system will tell you otherwise. Well, I just thought this is illusion, but it's interesting. Yes. Yeah, it, is, <laughs> it is created you know, by the mind. Yeah. It is constructed by the mind. Yeah. And now it's time to stop. So thank you for the conversation.